Hi, I'm Lynn Hogan. You're listening to ADA Live. Yo. Hi, everybody. On behalf of the Southeast ADA Center, the Burton Blatt Institute at Syracuse University, and the ADA National Network, I want to welcome you to ADA Live. I'm Barry Whaley. I'm director at the Southeast ADA Center. And as a reminder, listening audience, if you have questions about the ADA, you can use our online form anytime at adalive.org. Well, we've completed two years of the pandemic. We're going into our third year and leading health and research organizations have been able to gather some very interesting data on what we've been through and how it, is, how it has impacted us. Of particular concern is how we are doing in terms of our mental health. According to a scientific brief released in March by the World Health Organization, in the first year of the COVID-19 pandemic, Global prevalence of anxiety and depression increased by a whopping 25%. Mental Health America's 2021 report entitled COVID-19 and Mental Health, a Growing Crisis, reports the number of people looking for help with anxiety and depression skyrocketed, and the number of people screening with moderate to severe symptoms of depression and anxiety has continued to increase throughout 2020 and remains higher than rates prior to the COVID-19 pandemic. To help us understand these findings and how COVID has impacted our mental health from a clinical perspective, we welcome Dr. Lynn Hogan, a clinical therapist at Weems Community Mental Health Center, Forest Institute of Professional Psychiatry in Meridian, Mississippi. We also welcome our host, Dr. Peter Blank, professor and chairman of the Burton Blatt Institute. So Peter, I'll turn it over to you. Well, thank you, Barry and Dr. Hogan. Lynn, it's a pleasure to be with you. You're kind of on ground zero at a very, very challenging time in the mental health arena. Of course, I don't have to tell you that mental health is related to physical health and vice versa. It implicates substance abuse, domestic abuse. It has generational impact, suicide. It's a pleasure to have you today to begin a discussion about what you're seeing on the ground and perhaps laying some framework for our listeners about your views of long COVID, COVID in general, and the implications for mental health that you've seen locally, as well as in your travels and speaking around the country. Well, I want to say thank you. It's, uh, it's an honor to be a part of this uh, podcast and to, to be invited to be a part of y'all's program here. Um, I would say that this is this has been a, a big change for us in mental health. And, and even me uh, exclusively as an adult psychotherapist, uh, what I would start by saying this, I've been doing this almost 25 years. I have never been so busy uh, trying to keep up with this significant influx of both new patients, uh, Older patients that uh, may have, you know, uh, been seen years ago that are now calling back, uh, you know, and then the number of different, what I call shadow pandemic uh, uh, phenomena 
uh, uh, increased substance abuse, domestic violence, things like that. We, we're just busy. And then, of course, you know, when there was the shutdown uh, at the beginning of the pandemic, we, we lost some people. So the people that are kind of left were, were, were carrying two footballs, not one. <laughs> so uh, that's, that's one interesting thing that I've uh, come to um, sometimes painfully realize I can't get to everybody. And that's, that's uh, kind of heartbreaking to me because of this. But it's been a big deal. Well, that's an understatement, of course, and it certainly has an impact on the providers, mental health, and you heroes on the ground. What are the sorts of cases, obviously, without breaching any confidentiality in a kind of a generic sense, what are the sorts of issues you're seeing, and how is it different, not just in the magnitude of cases, but how is it different than what you've seen in the past? Well, I think some of the biggest things is are the uh, increased incidence of anxiety disorders. Uh, you know, this has been such a novel event worldwide and, and for society and, you know, has it had an effect on their, their psychology and their ability to manage stressors? The answer is profoundly yes. And so there's been increased anxiety. People just, if you don't know, then anxiety goes up. So those with pre-existing anxiety conditions, there has been exacerbation of symptomology. Uh, and then, of course, people naturally want to try to find some relief. And so they may turn to uh, sometimes maladaptive ways, using drugs or alcohol or what have you. Um, there's also what I've seen is an increase in uh, people presenting with grief due to uh, literally thousands of people in the state of Mississippi that have died. And of course, so as therapists, we're seeing the collateral effects of that. So they're coming in and they're saying, hey, my, my mom died or my aunt died or my son died. And, and so we're doing a lot of grief work, more so than I ever have in my life. And, and a lot of that, that is due to, to COVID. And Mississippi, but, of course, uh, deep in the South, a uh, high proportion of poverty, uh, racial disparities, uh, gender issues. Um, how do you see this as affecting individuals with who are particularly vulnerable already or, or who have multiple minority identities uh, in terms of race, gender, sexual orientation, and so forth? Well, absolutely. That, that's a great question. Uh, you know, Everybody, I'm pretty much as as aware of the kind of the low SES status of a um, a large percentage of people in the the deep South in general, but certainly in Mississippi. So I think one of the biggest problems is would be like barriers to uh, accessing mental health care, uh, either through no insurance. Um, and not knowing where facilities or where to get the help. Uh, I've got some patients that they can't afford the $5 to drive into town. And, you know, that kind of segues into the, uh, the, the good part of telemental health and things like that, which could also be a problem for people in rural areas that may not have the technology. But um, I would think just barriers to health care. Uh, if you lose your job, you can lose your health care insurance. Uh, and then just low SES means that you may not have a copay or 
or uh, even we have a sliding scale fee at our, our program, Wayne's Community Mental Health, which I'm elated to have. I'm, I'm elated to work for an organization that has a sliding scale where you're only charged according to your income. And so that breaks down some of those barriers. Do you see um, any sort of relief in sight or is this, you're not a prophet, neither none of us are, but if this becomes an endemic, like the flu in some sorts, do you see this as fundamentally requiring a change in the provision of mental health services? I mean, you, you can't go on not seeing a lot of people and feeling bad about it. Absolutely. I, I think one of the lights at the end of the tunnel is, you know, telemental health. And, you know, people getting back to work. Uh, one of the things that concerns me is that there's still an over 50% rate of unvaccinated people in the state of Mississippi. And here this week, there's been an increase in positive cases of COVID. Uh, the death rate has not gone up. Uh, fatality rate has not gone up significantly like it has in previous, like with the Delta variant Omicron when it first came out. But these variants of Omicron are kind of making a resurgence now. So we're seeing more and more cases, uh, positive cases here lately. Uh, but I'd like to really see this telemental health. I'm certified and I'm actually certified as a telebehavioral health therapist now. I did that when the pandemic, pandemic came out. But one of the barriers there would be, you know, would these people in these outlying areas have access to the internet or an internet service that's going to support that type of uh, uh, therapy. So I, I know there's light in the, the tunnel. Um, as COVID tends to become an, an endemic, hopefully more and more people will get the vaccination. I don't want to go political today, but there's a lot of reasons why I, that I hear when people come in Alaska, hey, well, have you had the vaccination? And I hear just a plethora of reasons from political to personal, some religious, whatever, why they're not getting the vaccination. Uh, but I think that's part of the light at the end of the tunnel also. You know, having worked in Alabama for quite a while, uh, Mississippi is not that dissimilar. There's very high rates of incarceration in yeah. local yeah. jails and state prisons. And there's a, a disproportionately high people of color who are in those prisons, yeah. uh, at least compared to the general population. The whole prison system is another issue. Maybe you have views on that, but re-entry is going to become a big issue as well. And how are those folks going to be served? Many of whom either had or had created mental health conditions while they were in prison. I agree. And it's interesting. It seems like in the last six or 12 months, I've had an increase in people that have uh, now exited the, uh, uh, the, the prison system or the penal system and, and they're, they're seeking help. They're coming to counseling. Some stick around with the counseling, some don't. I, I think that's a, a real important thing. And I do see a significant number of African-Americans here in the South that tend to end up in jail. And, you know, I, I'm, I'm sensitive to that. Um, I kind of hate to see that, but that's, I think that's something that's been going on a long time uh, around here. We've yeah. also touched upon domestic abuse and drug use. And how is this all tied together, of course, as levels of stress and economic disparities go up. But is there, is there some other uh, hidden reason that's going on? I think one of the main things that happened was, you know, when the country kind of shut down and this pandemic came about, 
there was a lot of people that lost their jobs. Um, we had to cut down on some of our staff here at this organization I'm with. And, you know, when, when you, somebody gets hit economically, that creates significant stress. There was uh, increase in domestic violence. We found that the, for example, the local women's shelter got full. Uh, we found that our, we have a CIT officer training program here in Mississippi where we train uh, police officers, deputies to do crisis intervention. I'm on that training team, which I'm, I'm grateful to be a part of. Uh, we found that they were very active. We found that our uh, crisis stabilization units were being were filled up. Um, our treatment center, we have a treatment center here on, on site, uh, 30 to 60, 90 day uh, inpatient substance abuse treatment program just started filling up. So I, I think when people get squeezed, so to speak, economically and uh, they, they worry and the stress goes up, they're going to try to find some way. And then, of course, there was this phenomenon where people were saying, OK, I'm now unemployed and I'm home with my significant other who I'm not really used to spend a lot of time with. And so there were some adjustments with that type thing that we saw. Those are some of these hidden shadow pandemics that we saw. Yeah, and you, and you must see, of course, an increase in uh, uh, single parents with children and people taking care of elderly parents. How has this affected the family unit from a mental health and COVID point of view? Well, there's already been stressors and, you know, you, th you talk about, uh, you're kind of alluding to what we call the sandwich population where you have a, a middle-aged couple that's raising kids, but then mom and dad's getting older. And so they're needing some help and they might need to move in. And so, you know, even uh, people when they lose their jobs or have economic problems will tend to move in together. And we've seen a lot of that. One thing I've seen, too, since I've been here in Mississippi is a lot of single parent families, typically mom. And of course, mom has to work in a lot of cases. And I, I really one of the interesting phenomenons I've noticed about Mississippi is that a lot of kids these days are being raised by the grandparents. A lot of single parent households uh, in, in this this area. And so imagine a mom that may lose her job due to, you know, the pandemic and now what do they do? So that that's increased stressors tremendously. So there has already been a lot of social stressors and, and things that weigh a lot on those populations. And then with the pandemic, it certainly just exacerbated those type things. And of course it's, it's heartbreaking to see teenage suicide rates and nursing home issues. What about the generational effects? Start with, this new generation that's just coming of age under these conditions, how are they going to have the resilience to, to address these issues and hopefully engage in society in positive ways once this pandemic subsides a bit? Uh, good question. And I, and I think the key word is what you said, and that is resilience. And we, we know that you know, kids and, and young adults can tend to be resilient. For whatever reason, we may be talking about a prefrontal cortex phenomenon. I don't know, <laughs> uh, but we, we kind of bank on that. And so they kind of they kind of make it through. And so I would hope that it would make them stronger. You know, we're all kind of living through this pandemic now. So I would hope that they would would tend to uh, get past this and, and move on, you know, because of the pandemic with more limited access to employment. 
I know that would have an effect on that population too. Talk about millennials and Generation X and all that. Um, what they're mainly wanting is to get employed, get on the job training. We've actually seen also a reduced number of people that are seeking college degrees. I think a lot of them were going straight to work. And there's a lot of jobs available now that are coming back in the service industry and things like that. So that's kind of a good thing. So there are jobs out there, not necessarily the high high paying jobs, but a lot of service industry jobs. We've talked about resilience and grit and this being an extraordinarily hard time. What do you tell folks who are listening who may not feel they need telehealth or, or uh, seeing somebody like yourself? What sort of things can they do to begin to better address the sorts of pressures to the extent that they can, you know, that, that we're presented with? Well, I think someone had mentioned at the beginning of our program here, something about mind-body entities and, you know, what affects our body affects our mind and vice versa. Um, I would just encourage people to, to try to be aware of when they're experiencing stressors. I also am a big believer, you know, we all have primary care doctors. We have our doctor, we go to all we should. We should also have a counselor that we talk to, you know, to address mental health issues, whether we're, we have a mental health diagnosis or not. I just think it's a good idea. I have a counselor that I talk to, I thoroughly enjoy it. I don't know what my diagnosis is. I don't really care. But, you know, the talk therapy, having someone I can go and just, you know, chat with and have a conversation, get things off my chest. That's very, very beneficial for us psychologically. And so I would encourage people to give counseling a try um, to, for their, their mental health, whether they have a pre-existing mental health condition or not. And then certainly if they feel like they're under a lot of stress, and a lot, a lot of times we don't feel like we are, but others may, may notice that we are, that's a good time to maybe seek out some help. Uh, I guess one obvious question is, how do people pay for this? Is it covered by insurance, this, this sort of wellness, uh, mental health check-in? Uh, absolutely. Well, for example, with our organization, you know, we'll do screenings. As a matter of fact, I'll encourage people to come in, let's come in, let's have a cup of coffee and just talk for a little bit. And we can do a screening and that could typically be no charge. As far as other, you know, payment uh, modalities, I mean, again, we have a sliding scale fee. Of course, we accept all the insurance, Medicaid, Medicare. There's a lot of grants or some grants that are available now. So some people that meet certain diagnostic criteria or certain types of issues, uh, perhaps recent inpatient psychiatric hospitalizations and things like that uh, can qualify for grants where the counseling could be at no charge. Well, you've provided us an awful lot of important information, Dr. Hogan. I would leave you with one last question, and that is, what are you optimistic about going forward? This is an unprecedented time. You're at the sure. forefront of dealing with these issues. What are you hopeful for and what do you hope for? Uh, another great question. And thank you so much for asking that question. I, I want to tell you, I am hugely optimistic that the help is there. The help is here. Uh, it takes people such as what you guys are doing. You know, we went out to California seeing that there, is, there are a lot of highly trained people that are positioned to help people that, that need help. We want to do that. Fires me when I see someone coming in and saying, hey, this is what I want to work on. And we work together as a team. 
you know, I'm, I'm, I'm hoping that, you know, the telehealth uh, will really take off. I think that's very helpful. Not that we want to completely replace face-to-face -face because face-to-face -face is very important. Uh, but, you know, video conference uh, counseling and telemedicine, which actually has been around a long time. I'm very hopeful about that. I'm hopeful that as Americans, because we have been through so much in our country that we will treat this as yet another thing to overcome. That's what I, I fully believe in. Listen, we're, we're the United States. We're tough, we're resilient. We've been through tough times. We will get through this together. And I love the fact that there's organizations like y'all's and many, many other highly trained, well-intentioned professionals ready, standing at the ready to help. Well, thank you, Dr. Hogan, for very inspiring and important remarks. Our listeners, I'm sure, uh, will appreciate it. They may have uh, comments and uh, questions, of course, which we'll forward to you. And we very much look forward to, to continuing this important conversation. Thank you again. And, uh, and thank y'all. Thank y'all very much. Thank you, Dr. Hogan. I, I really appreciate you, your generosity with your time today. You're welcome. Thank you all. ADA Live listeners, our guest today has been Dr. Lynn Hogan, along with Dr. Peter Blank, uh, and we thank them for their time. As a reminder, you can access ADA Live episodes with archived audio, accessible transcripts, and resources at our website, adalive.org. You can listen to ADA Live on our SoundCloud channel at soundcloud.com forward slash ADA Live. You can download ADA Live to your mobile device. Go to your podcast app and search for ADA Live. Remember, if you have questions about the Americans with Disabilities Act, you can use our online form anytime at adalive.org, or you can contact your regional ADA center at 1-800-949-4232. And as always, those calls are free and they're confidential. ADA Live is a program of the Southeast ADA Center, the Burton Blatt Institute at Syracuse University, and is a collaboration with the Disability Inclusive Employment Policy Rehabilitation Research and Training Center. Our producer is Celestia Razda with Beth Miller-Harrison, Mary Mortar, Emily Ruber, Marsha Schwanke, Chase Coleman, and me, I'm Barry Whaley. Our music is from Four Wheel City, the Movement for Improvement. Uh, we also invite you to tune in to our companion podcast, Disability Rights Today, for in-depth discussions on important court cases that shape the Americans with Disabilities Act. You can learn more and listen at disabilityrightstoday.org. See you next episode.